When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year, on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. If you like this podcast and you want it without advertisements, head over to patreon.com and become a member of The Brian McClanahan Show. For 10 bucks a month, you get all the podcasts ad-free, including video, and you also get a special Q&A podcast. I'm only going to answer your questions, your listener-generated episodes, through those Q&As. So head over to patreon.com. Get this podcast ad-free, no ads, not even things like this, and you really do help support The Brian McClanahan Show with really cool stuff on the back end. Get the book that Kevin Goodsman called the single best volume on original intent ever written, My Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. It is the book. When people ask me what's my favorite, that's the one. Pick it up wherever books are sold online and get a real education on the Constitution. Is secession a solution or a surrender? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Let's talk again about secession. Big topic this week. We're focusing on it in a number of different areas. And in fact, tomorrow we're going to have a, a positive assessment of the idea. But today we're going to talk about a piece that appeared at Blaze Media. And it's very critical of the notion of secession because it could lead to war. Now, in order to understand this piece, you have to understand the Lincolnian framework, the Lincolnian mindset. And I think most Americans share this kind of view. In fact, in April, we have a movie coming out, Civil War, you have states leaving the Union. That led to war. You see, this is based on the presumption that mere independence is an act of war. That the party that is being left, right, the, the, the group that is left behind is naturally going to force the seceding party back into the arrangement. Now, it's worked out that way, a lot, but not always. And we can have a very concrete example in the last, say, 30 years of the former Soviet republics who left the Soviet Union and were not coerced back into it. Now, of course, we're looking at Ukraine. It's one of those republics that left the Soviet Union. A little different situation because at first, Russia wasn't interested in reacquiring all of Ukraine just a part of Ukraine that had wanted to break out of Ukraine and join Russia again, right? The Donbass. So 
we, we have this issue of secession. It's very interesting how this works, but secession doesn't always equal coercion. That comes out of a very Lincolnian mindset. So uh, last week, or a couple of weeks ago, I should say, uh, a member of The Blaze, uh, someone who writes for them, was invited on the Tim Pool podcast to talk about secession. And this is a very interesting conversation that they had. There was one member of the Cal Exit group, and then also Tim Pool and this individual from The Blaze. And the conversation centered around what would happen if California leave. And of course, it took a very negative tone. Now, let me say this about modern secession. There is a lot to be worked out in this. Uh, it's not easy. It would, it would require a different kind of mindset for any of it to work. I think the best shot that any state would have would be a New England state or California, a leftist state, maybe Washington, Oregon, one of these states. If you're talking about a southern state leaving, what you're going to get is the constant reminder of, say, Jim Crow or slavery, and this is all they want to do again, is reinstitute these kind of uh, political and economic systems. And of course, it's simply not true. But secession is a final act. As I mentioned before, secession and nullification are two different things. And as we talked about yesterday on the Utah Sovereignty Act, uh, there are other options. This particular piece I'm going to talk about has another option, which I think would be a very bad idea because it simply exacerbates the problem. And this is what James Madison pointed out uh, when you got to a, a situation of a legislature. What is the ideal size of a legislature? You can only have it be so big. But it does raise the interesting question about representation. However, the problem is it doesn't really solve the issue. It doesn't really solve the outstanding constitutional problem, the structural problem that we're facing now because, or at least the ideological problem we're facing because of Lincolnian nationalism. So secession to, to work, and somebody asked me this uh, a couple of weeks ago, do you think it would happen? I, I simply said no. I think there's too many financial interests tied into this. For example, if Texas would leave, you're going to have some people who don't want it to happen in Texas. You're also going to have a large financial stake for some individuals to stay in the union. And they have money and power because they have money. And so they're going to petition some type of response to it that would require Texas to stay in the union. But I think the mere threat of independence, the mere threat of secession, can get some things done. It's what happened for years as things were threatened. There was always this back and forth. But more importantly, the mere threat of nullifying almost always gets things done. Now, as I've said on the show many times, I believe in the principle. I believe that if people, in convention in particular, decide that they want to be out of the union, then there's nothing that should be done to stop them. That is an act of self-determination by the people of a state, the sovereign people of the sovereign state, and they should be able to leave. And no one should coerce them back into the union. No matter what the cause for it, this is what the people want to do. And so in that case, and I think this is perfectly legal according to the Constitution, if you understand reserve powers, if you understand the Tenth Amendment, it's clear. If you understand the entire ratification process, the drafting, drafting of the Constitution, of course, the Articles of Confederation, the shift from the Articles of the Constitution, all of this is clear legally that there's nothing that could be done to prevent this. James Buchanan's 
uh, attorney general was close to right about this. He said, look, secession is illegal, but we can't use force to stop it. I would say secession is legal and you can't use force to stop it unless you have a declaration of war. And only then if the state actually would commence violence or engage in war against the remaining union. That's the only time you could declare war on that state. That's it. Secession is perfectly legal. The question is, would it be a good idea? I mean, that's that's a whole other thing we would need to discuss. But this piece gets into that a little bit. The solution for it, I think, is a little bit misguided. So let me let me cover this piece. The title is National Divorce, A Solution or Surrender. It's by Jeff Mayhew at Blaze Media. And Mayhew is completely against it. He says, recently I appeared on the culture war with Tim Poole discussing the possibility of national divorce with Louis Marinelli, founder of the CalExit campaign, a movement to establish the country of Pacifica in the San Francisco Bay Area. Three weeks ago, Daniel Miller, leader of the Texit movement, was on the show discussing the possibility of Texas leaving the Union. At LibertyCon early this month, Mises Institute editor Ryan McMakin and Project Liberal founder Jonathan Casey debated whether a national divorce would lead to more liberty. So the, the amazing, let me just stop here and, and, and just say how profound this actually is. Tim Poole has one of the largest podcasts in the United States. It's on par, not on par, but close to on par with Joe Rogan. It is a huge podcast. The fact that Tim Poole is having people on twice to talk about secession is a major step towards a conversation on this issue. 20 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. 30 years ago, definitely not. 20, maybe. 30, not at all. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, absolutely snowball's chance and you know where that this would have actually happened. That you would have had people on here talking about secession. California exit. California secession. Texas secession. I remember in 2010, there was a conference by the Abbeville Institute in Charleston, South Carolina on the issue, and we had a fairly decent attendance for that conference. And we had Thomas Naylor on there of the Second Vermont Republic. Now, Naylor has since deceased, but the Second Vermont Republic was pushing the envelope on this years ago, and it was getting a little bit of media, but nothing like this. Mises, of course, has been very much interested in this. There was a... Um, I was invited to a debate on this topic uh, last year in New York, um, and I couldn't make it. But again, a, another very large profile libertarian type debate structure where they were going to talk about secession. Does it create more liberty? That's the, the ideological framework around Mises is interesting because that's what they're concerned about. What it would do, whether it creates more liberty or not, is better reflect the political culture of the area. I mean, for example, if California leaves the Union, do I think it's going to create more liberty for the people of California? Absolutely not. I think it's going to create more of the socialist state of California. So in that particular case, I think California is going to go further left. There's only so many things that they can do with the breaks in place that are there from the central authority. Even though we're seeing a leftward lurch, there are things because of the courts and other stuff that they can't do in California that they would do if they were independent. But you know what? California, politically and culturally, is in that 
is going in that direction. If you're a conservative in California, you should be trying to get the heck out of there in some way. I mean, divesting yourself of California. Now, California is a huge state economically. I mean, this is the other thing. The money, the people of California that would lose money for California to be independent would be interesting. Would they lose? Would they gain? I don't know. But you've got all the tech there. You've got huge farms in California. I mean, the amount of agricultural products, the shipping, everything else that California does in driving, helping to drive the American economy is a big deal. And I think you would have individuals who would be interested in coercing California to stay in the union. Texas is the same thing. Huge economy. You're talking about economies that are, uh, you know, top 10, close to it, in the world if these states were to leave. I mean, these are big economies. Drive engines driving the American economy. So the money tied in would be interesting. How that would shake out. But the fact that people are talking about this in this kind of way is huge. Again, I've, I've said... Yesterday, on the show, 1999, I have a conversation about nullification. It's also in the 90s that you had Tom Fleming, of, uh, who was the editor of Chronicles Magazine, say, you know what we need to do? Just walk into pubs around the United States and start saying, we need to secede, and then having a conversation. This would have been lunacy in the 1990s. But in 2024, maybe, people are actually talking about it. And there are people that are reacting to it the way you would expect in a Lincolnian framework, including Jeff Mayhew. He says, why is national divorce such a hot topic these days? Could it be because 65% of Americans believe candidates for office serve their own interests and 61% believe those interests are for the wealthy? We must give power to the powerless and representation to the unrepresented. The reason so many Americans want a national divorce is that they feel unrepresented and powerless. That is 100% true. The reason people want independence is because they believe they have no future in this particular system. This is think locally, act locally. Why Why are Americans angry? Because we have a central authority with plenary power, unlimited power, that can do whatever it wants, and people don't have any representation unless they have cash. That's the problem. He is pointing out one of the real issues. But then he says this, but we tried a national divorce. It didn't work out. Well, why? It could have. That's the question that's not being answered properly. Why didn't it work out? Yeah, the South tried to leave, but it wasn't the first time that anyone had discussed secession. We know New Englanders were discussing discussing secession. We know there were abolitionists who were pretty hardcore secessionists. William Lloyd Garrison was one. Lysander Spooner was another. But there were others. We know that New Englanders wanted secession in the 1815, right? I mean, they, they wanted out. We know New Englanders wanted secession in 1803 and 1801 and 1794. We know Southerners had discussed it in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. We know the South actually pulled it off in 1861. It didn't work because the Lincolnian myth kicked in of an indissoluble union, indivisible. One nation indivisible, one people. That kicked in and Lincoln sent in the troops. That's why it didn't work. It could have worked. 
Lincoln could have let the seven states leave in peace. You still would have had the United States structurally maintained except for these seven states out of the Union, or maybe even just South Carolina. That's the dirty little secret. If Lincoln had been willing to compromise in 1860, if he hadn't told Republicans don't compromise, when there are proposals in the Congress to solve the issue, you may have only had South Carolina out of the Union. And at that point, maybe South Carolina comes back in. Remember, they nullified the tariff in 1832. They then nullified the force bill and rescinded their, their ordinance of nullification of the tariff. They might have come back in the Union. It might have been it. All they would have had to do is compromise. But McClanahan, at that point, we would have had slavery extending into territories. Out to the... You have to understand, in 1860, Americans would have supported this. I mean, if, if, we're, if our goal is to avoid war and the death of a million Americans, tremendous property destruction, the centralization of power to a point unknown before then, right? if that's what our goal was, to avoid those things... And Lincoln himself was willing to allow slavery till 1900. He said it in 1862. He actually said it before the war. I'm willing to allow slavery to exist in the South in perpetuity. I'll support an amendment that would do this. It was the territories. And of course, people in the North pointed out, well, how much slavery are you actually going to have in Arizona or New Mexico? What's really going to happen out there? Or maybe Southern California. What's really going to happen? Nothing. I think that's the point. You wouldn't have had really a whole lot of slavery out there at all. But it would have maintained the Union. And the South, we have to understand, would have been compromising more than the North. Remember in 1858, the Supreme Court said, and of course, according to Bill O'Reilly, we got to listen to the Supreme Court all the time. The Supreme Court said that slavery was legal in all the territories. So for the South to say, okay, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just take the lower half again, would have been a major compromise on their, on their part. But you see, national divorce didn't work out because Lincoln sent in the troops. Of course, that's not what this piece says. That's not what Mayhew says. He turns us all back on the South. The three-fifths compromise determined representatives and direct taxes apportioned by the whole number of free persons and three-fifths of all other persons, meaning slaves. This meant that southern slave-holding states would have unequal representation in the House. They could purchase representation and increase their power in the House of Representatives and the Electoral College. Now, this is a really interesting point. He actually points out that this is for taxes. That's what the whole issue was. You go back to the Philadelphia Convention. Why did the South want slaves counted towards representation? Because they understood that if they didn't do this, they would be taxed out of existence. You see, Southerners actually wanted them to be slaves to be counted as a whole person towards representation. He said, after all, they're people. They're people. Northerners said, they're not people. They're chattels. Southerners said, no, they're people. We count women. We count children. Why can't we count slaves? They're people. No, no, no. Those are chattels. Who was actually willing to recognize the humanity in slaves, Northerners or Southerners? Well, clearly Southerners in this particular case. So they only got three-fifths. But they were people with economic interests. They were people who had to be provided for in one way or another. So you can see the South's point. You can also see the point of the North in saying, well, I mean, but these people will never vote. But 
course, women and children weren't voting in the North either, nor were blacks. We have to understand blacks, free blacks, could actually vote in North Carolina until 1830. Well, they couldn't do that in many other places, in, the, in almost every other place in the North. And we also know that there were black Southerners who owned slaves. I mean, all this was there, right? The, the whole story of the South is complex. But regardless, we have him saying, well, this is kind of a weird non sequitur, right? So he says it didn't work out because three-fifths compromise. <laughs> the founding generation set forth a path to abolish slavery with the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, the Act Prohibiting Importation of Slaves of 1807, and the Missouri Compromise of 1820. Well, that wasn't really a path to abolish slavery at all. That's a, Again, that's not really historically accurate. The path to abolish slavery would have been, as every state did, through the state legislatures. Saying that we're going to abolish it in the territories is a whole other thing. Now, Southerners were completely against the importation of slaves, or at least the majority of Southerners, completely against the importation of slaves, the international slave trade. In fact, this is what George Mason said in the Philadelphia Convention. You've left open the most heinous part, and you've restricted the other part. I mean, it, this was a big... They talked about this. The international slave trade was considered to be horrendous. It was left open. And in, Southerners are the ones who closed this up immediately when they could. This is the Jefferson administration. He wanted this thing done. Jefferson, of course, did talk about, and many Southerners talked about, the fact that slavery created a, a difficult situation. This is what Jefferson called the wolf by the ears in Missouri. We've got the wolf by the ears. We can't let it go. You know, it's terrible. We're holding this thing. It's going to get us if we let it go. So we have to hold it. But the Missouri Compromise wasn't in any way a path to abolishing slavery. If this is the case, if this is the case, then why would Lincoln say, we can leave slavery in existence wherever it is? I mean, we'll let it live in South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, wherever. It can stay there forever. And we'll even have an amendment that would make it permanent in those states. And, you know what? Once the war began and that wasn't going to work out, 1865, Lincoln says, hey, here's the thing. January of 1865, Paul Escott brings this up in his book, What Shall We Do With the Negro? He says, you know what? Uh, if you all come back in the Union right now, if you just put down your arms, come back in, you can vote down this 13th Amendment. Therefore, slavery would exist in the South until you get rid of it. The territory is non-negotiable. You see, that was Lincoln's non-negotiable position. But he didn't always have that position. But here, the territories are non-negotiable. See, that was always the point. For Southerners, you're violating the, a Supreme Court decision. You're violating the Constitution by doing this. That was always their contention. There wasn't a path to abolishing slavery. Mayhew is completely wrong about this. Unfortunately, the founders' heirs failed to follow, follow through with the plan. Slaveholders consolidated the power of the executive, Senate, and House, into the well-funded and organized Democratic Party to preserve and extend slavery. <laughs> I mean, you might as well have the left write this thing. Because, or, or this is this is Republicans good, Democrats bad, right? That's the whole other thing about this. Slaveholders consolidated power. Slaveholders like Zachary Taylor, who was willing to have California come in as a free state, consolidated power. 
Uh, I mean, is that the case or, you know, I don't know. That's consolidating power. Millard Fillmore, that's consolidating power. Preserving slavery was something that everyone just said could happen. Even Lincoln himself. Extending it is a whole other issue. Would it really be extending slavery? That was always the, the million-dollar question, so to speak. Does it extend it or not? Some would say it did. Some would say it didn't. But regardless. The power shift began with the annexation of Texas and continued with the Mexican-American War and the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Again, uh, is the power shift... I guess he's ignoring the 24 years that Virginia controlled the executive office. Then you had four years of John Quincy Adams where he was booted out. He shouldn't even have won there. Then you get Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren. I mean, so the power shift began with the annexation of Texas in 1844? What about slaveholders controlling the general government in 1801? Or... in in 1789. But of course, the Federalists were there. But once the Jeffersonians took over, I mean. So you have Jeffersonians, you get a you get a national Republican. Of course, Quincy Adams, as a member of the House, was very interested in trying to abolish slavery. But then he's out in four years. Then you get Andrew Jackson. No real worries about this. Then you get Martin Van Buren, same thing. Then you get William Henry Harrison, a slave owner. Uh, from a slave-owning family, anyways. And, of course, he dies, John Tyler. Of course, that's 1844. So the power shift began in 1844? No. Mexican-American War, James K. Polk, 1846? No. This is when the issue of Western territory becomes much more pronounced, but we already had it. He said we had the Missouri Compromise before this. Northwest Ordinance of 1787 is under the Articles of Confederation, and there is some question as to whether... The Congress even had power to do that thing. That's a whole other issue. Kansas-Nebraska Act really was a betrayal in some ways of the old compromises. That was a northerner, Stephen Douglas, not southerners that did that. In fact, when you look at the issue of slavery being presented in Congress, when John Quincy Adams was, was banging the table trying to get this, it was northerners who were pushing for the gag rule because they recognized the threat presented to the Union. The Union was more important just as it was for the founding generation. The Democratic Party maneuvered and consolidated power to advance the cause of slavery, undoing the founding generation's work. What founding generation's work is that? I mean, which founders are we talking about here, and what was the work that they were doing? I mean, which work is this? In fact, there was some discussion in 1819 about Illinois adopting slavery. Jefferson was quiet on it. There was some, some question. Hey, what should we do here? Jefferson said nothing. He said nothing about it. It was up to Illinois. That's the work of the founders. Federalism is the work of the founders. Letting the states decide this issue is the work of the founders. The Missouri Compromise, which you still have members of the founding generation in the Congress, passed by a bare majority. There were, there were members of the founding generation who thought this was an abuse of power by the central authority. In particular, you got to remember who was president, James Monroe. He said it's non-negotiable. If you try to tell Missouri what they can and cannot do with the institution, that's it. It's non-negotiable. You can't do that. 
that was a big issue. You couldn't say the state was going to be free or slave. The Congress couldn't do that. That was the issue. You see. And no one really even thought about Louisiana when it was brought in. Nobody brought up, hey, uh, you know, should we make this thing free or slave? That wasn't the issue. And that's the founding generation. It was all open to slavery. All of it. They didn't even discuss it. So where's the founding generation? Where's the work of the founding generation right there? Consolidating power also caused a divide in the Union that went deeper than slavery. I agree, but not in the way that Mayhew is going to point out. Consolidating power by the North caused a divide in the Union that went deeper than slavery. Yes, consolidation of power always causes problems. Centralization was always the thorn. In the period leading up to the Civil War, a majority of Americans not support the abolition of slavery. True. What they did agree on was that Southern slaveholders had manipulated power that created economic instability and sent the nation to war with Mexico. False. They didn't agree on that. There was the Whig Party that said that, but the majority party in America was the Democrats, and they didn't agree with this. They didn't agree with that at all. Innocent Americans were dying, and it was all in pursuit of the preservation of slavery. False. Who was the defender of slavery, the primary defender of slavery, the symbol of it all, the American Hitler? Who is that? John C. Calhoun. Now, who was one of the most ardent opponents of the Mexican War? Why? John C. Calhoun. In fact, there was a pretty substantial movement in the Democratic Party to go and take all of Mexico. Just take the whole country. Make it part of the United States. Calhoun opposed it. Thought it would be a disaster. He, he opposed acquiring all this territory because it could be a disaster. He opposed it. But the majority of Americans, as evidenced by election results, supported it. To defeat the power of the slaveholders who controlled the Democratic Party, the other factions of power consolidated into the new Republican Party. Well, not till 1854. So we go from 1846 to 1854. And the Republican Party was never the majority party in America unless they could manipulate elections. It was never the majority party. So when he says what they did agree on was that Southern slaveholders have manipulated power. No, this is just garbage. David Barton, uh, you know, Patriots history of America, Schweiniger, all these people. This is the garbage history that comes out of those Straussian historians who don't really understand what they're talking about. It's garbage. So what happened to the Whigs who did win the 1848 election? by the way. They won that election. Zachary Taylor won because they ran a war hero and Taylor was very popular. But Taylor also said, you know what should happen? Maybe California should be an independent country. And Polk was shocked. What? How? how what? I didn't, I didn't go to war to get California. That's what Polk really wanted. To have it leave the Union. It wasn't about acquiring slave territory. It was about getting California. I didn't go do that. What about Washington? What about the Oregon Territory, right? What about Washington State and Oregon? Was that slavery? Polk wanted those things too. Was that a war to get slave territory? Because last time I checked, there was no slavery in that part of the United States. But Polk acquired that too. 
I mean, this is like cartoonish, you know, juvenile. The slaveholders were in the majority position for a long time, and they didn't want to give it up. When they became the minority, they left the Union leading to the Civil War. Except they weren't really in the minority. They never were in the minority. If the Democrats hadn't split in 1860, they still would have been in the majority. Democrats polled more. I mean, you look at the three, you look at the three, Lincoln only got 39% of the vote. So are the Republicans in the majority? No. Now, in the 1860 election, they took Congress. That did happen. But the Democrats still would have controlled the executive branch. And there's no question if there was some kind of compromise, the Republican Party would have been ushered out of power and it's over because that was the issue. That was the issue. But Northern Democrats, very strong. I mean, there were places that Lincoln barely won in the North. And in 1864, he only got 54% of the popular vote. That means that in the North, he was barely in the majority. The Republicans were barely in the majority. You throw the South back in, again, they're in the minority. We know they're in the minority because once the Republicans couldn't manipulate elections anymore, beginning in the 1870s, they lost. Now, they won the presidency. But you get a point. We know 1876, they really lost. Democrats are back. 1880, they win. Again, very close election. But 1884, the Democrats are back in power. So we know that the Democrats were not the minority party. Over time, the Northerners understood that the real fight was over representation. I mean, over time. How long? Americans were reminded of the declaration that all men are created equal. And to be equal, each man must be given a vote. To be free, a person must have a voice in his government, a right to representation. What is all this nonsense? Over time, uh, and, then, and then over time, then we got this. This is a really juvenile piece. How long over time? Because I don't think people have really recognized this at all. All Americans were reminded of the declaration. Who reminded them? When did this remind them? The Civil War led to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which freed the slaves, extended the federal government's protection over the people of the states. No, no, no. And balanced representation in the House by expanding the right to vote. Balanced representation in the House. Huh? How did that happen? Balanced representation. By giving more people the ability to vote? How that balanced representation? You're saying that more people could vote, but women still couldn't vote. So it didn't balance representation at all, if you want to take that position. Uh, the 13th Amendment, of course, abolished slavery. Like 14th Amendment extended the federal government's protection over the people of the states. That's a pretty vanilla way of describing what the 14th Amendment did. But, I mean, just kind of gloss over that. It wasn't even ratified properly anyways. But let's get into his, his argument here. What does our past national divorce have to do with the current discussion about national divorce? During the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, immigration grew substantially in America. This led to a new fighter representation in the House. Represent representatives of cities supported counting all persons for purposes of apportionment in the House. Representatives of rural America wanted to count only American citizens. By 1911, this caused a stalemate in Congress over apportionment that lasted until 1929, when the Permanent Apportionment Act, which capped the number of representatives at 435 and determined that apportionment would count all persons regardless of citizenship or legal status. Since 1929, the representative to citizen ratio has grown from 1 to 220,000 to around 1 to 756,000. Power is concentrated in cities, leading to an imbalance of power in the House between rural and urban America. 
America, Americans can't divorce because they are not divided by states' interests. The lines are blurred. It's not North versus South or the state versus the state. It's the interests of red versus blue. Now, this is partly true, right? But you still could divorce. I mean, you've got more people, more red people, so to speak, in Georgia than you do blue. Same thing in Texas. So they could leave. I mean, there were, pla- there were pockets of places that didn't support secession in the states that left the Union before. That doesn't matter. The, people, the majority of the people of the state want out. They're out. But he skips over the fact that in, in 1790, the representative ratio is 1 to 30,000. So when we got to 1929, 1 to 220, that was already a distortion. The real issue is centralization of power. This wasn't about, you know, well... What was going on here? Why were these people upset about representation? Because everything was being centralized. Because of Lincolnian nationalism forced everything to the center. That beautiful 14th Amendment that he talks about was destroying America. The Republican Party was destroying America by centralizing power and centralizing every decision in Washington, D.C. So the issue of representation is a huge issue. But he's missing... The forest. Uh, yeah, we got to have more representation. The real issue is centralization of power and a loss of federalism. The real issue is that states were blocked from acting like states, which is the exact thing he's saying we still need to do. He's not even bringing up federalism. It's all about having more members of Congress. What's that going to do? Get more centralization of power? An unmanageable situation there. I mean, look, when Congress does less, everything's better. So, I mean, his solution is ridiculous. The capping of the House is concentrated power and those with connections and money to donate. The representative speaks with donors and insiders instead of the American people. The rest of America, people with busy family schedules and bills to pay are left powerless and unrepresented. That's all true, right? I mean, this is Hume's idea of decentralization. Not, not just adding more people to the Congress, because what are you going to do? You're just going to add more corruption. The idea of popular sovereignty led to the bleeding violence of bleeding Kansas. If we're to adopt that idea again, like allowing a state to leave the Union, there is a likelihood of violence that could escalate into another civil war. Huh? The idea of popular sovereignty led to the violence of bleeding Kansas. So if we were to adopt that again, then maybe we'd have a civil... This doesn't... This doesn't even make any sense. This is... I mean... This guy really has a historical problem. The idea of popular sovereignty... But aren't you saying we need more popular sovereignty? Don't we need more people participating in government? You're saying that led to bleeding Kansas, and because we have bleeding Kansas, because more people were participating, then we had a civil war. Hmm. In the event of a state leaving the Union, what would happen if the blue part of California began oppressing the red part, or in Texas... The red part began oppressing the blue part. Well, if the state's out of the union, then that would be the people of California or Texas to decide, not the rest of the United States. This is kind of weird. What would happen? Well, then you would have that. What if it led to violence like in Bleeding Kansas? But see, Kansas was a territory in the United States, wasn't even a state yet, you're saying, so if California became a territory and Texas became a territory, then what would the United States do? But they would be independent countries and the, the United States would have no control over that anyway. Would the federal government step in if innocent Americans caught in the middle were dying? 
well, if they were not part of the federal government anymore, how would the federal government step in? I mean, this is so weird. This argument is weird. It doesn't even make any sense. This person has not thought anything out. But his solution is to uncap the House. A national divorce carries the possibility of violence and is powerless, unrepresented American citizens who would suffer the most. The possibility of violence. Uh, so does the situation we're in right now. In Federalist 10, James Madison argued that factions are natural in society, and to control the effects of factions, we must create a system that recognizes and harnesses its power. In Federalist 55, Madison argued the virtues and flaws of the small and large legislative bodies. A large body can be confusing and inefficient, and a small body is more efficient but is at higher risk of corruption. National divorce is not the answer, but representation is. We need a large legislative body to limit government corruption while allowing more factions to balance our diverse society. We must give power to the powerless and representation to the unrepresented. We must uncap the House of Representatives. So, wait a second here. Madison says that factions are natural. To control the effects of factions, we must create a system that recognizes. So that would be federalism. <laughs> That's what we were getting. Federalism, right? So we have a federal republic. But in Federalist 55, we got a large body is confusing and efficient. But what... Mayhew is saying we need a large body because that's confusing and inefficient. All right. And a small one is better, but higher risk of corruption. So um, we need to have a, a large body of people that's confusing and inefficient instead of just going back to federalism. This is a really weird piece. I mean, this guy would be so easy to beat in a debate on this issue. It wouldn't even, I mean, it would be like, you know, stealing candy from a baby. But anyways, that's the position here, and I find this fascinating that you have the Blaze taking this up in a very discordant, historically inaccurate, and ridiculous way. But at least people are talking about it. I'll give them that. So, got a really great pro piece on secession tomorrow from a friend of mine, colleague of mine, which I will talk about. So we're going to finish up this week with a nice positive piece and something I agree with instead of disagreeing with. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.